Fulton's Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's guest is Dr. Kristen Glorioso, creator of the Real Science Online Community. She is a computational biologist and neuroscientist working at MIT and a physician. Kristen's COVID cases prediction model is currently competing for the X Prize. Hello, Kristen. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to give a quick heads up to the audience here. We're, we're switching gears on the program a little bit today. Um, normally, I interview people who have some sort of role in creating cultural artifacts, writers, artists, producers, etc. Um, however, today we have a scientist uh, as our guest. And my rationale for uh, bringing you on the program is simply that I believe the pandemic is affecting everything in our lives. It's affecting how culture is created. It's affecting how we consume it. I can't go to the movie theater. I haven't been to the movie theater for a year. So I'm eager to find out everything I can about the pandemic. And that is one of the things you are focused on as of now. Am I correct? Yes. So I, I am a computational biologist uh, by training. So, um, and I have been modeling the pandemic now, basically since the start of it. So, yes. And you're currently competing with other modelers for the X Prize, right? That is correct. So, um, X Prize, which is a nonprofit uh, company that puts on these big global challenges to solve uh, world problems. Um, has had several uh, COVID challenges. And one of them is um, the pandemic response challenge, which is the one that I uh, joined in November. And that challenge was two parts. The first part was to have a really good predictive model for cases of COVID uh, across the world in various countries. And the second part of it was to um, use AI and machine learning to um, come up with predictions um, for combinations of different non-pharmaceutical interventions like mask wearing and closing schools and um, all of the interventions various governments have done and uh, figure out what the best set of plans might be for minimizing both cases and economic damage. Um, So that was the challenge. Um, And I was already... Uh, predicting cases um, just sort of on my own to try to keep my friends and family safe. And because I have a background of similar kind of predictive modeling um, in Alzheimer's disease and brain aging, which is a different subject, but the tools are pretty similar. Um, And so since I already had a working model, I thought, why not enter the contest? So. And that is how your work came across my radar. I saw someone on social media commenting about the contest and specifically about your place in it. Um, and before we get to that piece of it, where, where the contest stands, um, I would like to ask you, um, about just how you model something like this to begin with. Um, you're, you're competing with a lot of other modelers. And my first question about that is, are you guys all essentially coming to the problem with essentially the same sets of data and uh, manipulating certain factors more than others as your parameters to predict? Or is part of the modeling game choosing and discriminating different types of data. Yeah, so we have the same, so the way the contest was designed, so there's a hundred and, so I should just say about the teams, there's 104 teams across the world that from from a lot of institutions that do machine learning and um, uh, 
that kind of thing, or even private corporations. There's people that work for, you know, companies that do other kinds of modeling normally that have, that are in the challenge now. Um, And the way it was designed was to use the Oxford England database. Um, So Oxford has a repository that also takes um, data from Hopkins and other places like that. And so they have cases and deaths and they've made a set of standard um, pharmaceutical, non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as mask wearing, and they standardized it for every country so that like it could be like how open are schools on a scale of one to four. And so they've managed to go through every country and standardize that. So every country's on the same scale so you can compare them. Um, and so everybody has those basic inputs. The number of cases are the same and you know the population of the countries and these um, interventions. But then other sources of data that you can use to help make your model better um, are up to you, sort of any data you can find. So stuff like Google Mobility, how many people, you know, are riding the subway or in, you know, a store, right? Stores at uh, a given time using Google data is one, is one, you know, type of data or uh, some people added temperature. So um, making predictions for what the temperature is in various places going forward. So you can basically use any data you want. Um, The only caveat to that is that uh, the model has not had internet access since we submitted it, which was December 22nd. So um, the only inputs it's taking are the Oxford standardized inputs. But in creating the model, you can use any data you have access to and think will be helpful. So so is it possible that uh, your local understanding of how the model is predicting is more accurate. Uh, you have a, a more accurate version to yourself versus which whatever version is presently available on XPRIZE? Yes. So I, so what I've been posting and I think I, I've had like a COVID countdown of how many days before I think things will, um, have many fewer cases in the U.S. And that is actually the original model from that I submitted on December. I haven't touched touched it at all. Um, but theoretically, I do have a local copy, so I could improve it or add features to it um, and just host that myself on a website. And um, I will, in the show notes, include a link to <clears throat> your most recent COVID countdown chart but uh, for the folks who are listening now, um, the the chart that I'm constantly referring to, there are a number of different ones, but the one uh, that I'm looking at charts two trend lines. Number one is your prediction model, and number two is the actual known cases in the United States. And when you overlap those two trend lines, they are beautifully aligned and in sync. Um, and it, it, in, uh, it implies that your model is pretty doggone good. Yeah, it, it, um, it has been very, very accurate so far for over two months now, which is a good amount of time. So I've been telling my friends and family since mid-December what the cases would be now, and it is pretty much dead on for that. So, um, I've and, got, oh, go ahead, go ahead. And, and, and that's useful, right? Because that, you know, people need to be able to plan their lives, right? And, um, knowing how many cases will be out there and when things will be over or over-ish or it allows people to, to do that. And, and it also allows us to know when things go wrong. So if my model starts being inaccurate, then we know that there's something else going on, like a variant that is. You know, a problem. So, so when you spoke earlier about additional sources of data, uh, such as uh, Google, um, for for lack of a better term, uh, the 
the tracks location positioning of, of, of folks. Um, I, one of the questions I wanted to ask, and I think you've already answered it is you're, you're not really modeling the virus's behavior so much as you're modeling human behavior, right? Yeah. So, so if we had perfect information, right, about what has been going on in this pandemic, then a typical, just classic, you know, epidemiological model and SIR model would work really, really well. But this isn't theoretical, right? This is real life. So if someone, you know, if a place makes, uh, um, like, makes a mask mandate, for, for instance, right? How well are people actually following that mandate? You know, so that adds noise to the model. So being being able to to know what's actually happening versus what, you know, the law is. Um, another example of that is, um, that's really important actually to have an accurate model is knowing how many actual cases are out there versus the reported cases. Mm-hmm. So we know that there are like four to 10 times as many cases as being reported. And for an EPI model to work well, you need to know exactly how many cases there are. So there's guesswork in that. You have to create an algorithm to, to based on a bunch of stuff, you know, the death rate, the hospitalization rate, the antibody testing um, surveys, and to be able to know exactly how many cases are out there. And then once you have that accurate piece, then modeling becomes easier. But that that has been difficult because we we don't have uh, enough testing to have really accurate data for the pandemic. Yeah, and I I suppose are are you mostly reliant on like polling data at this point for people and hoping that they are honestly answering whether or not they are complying with mask mandates or mask suggestions? Yeah. So I, so that is a piece that I am not actually doing, but I do have some friends um, who are also in the contest that are in uh, Valencia, Spain, who have a survey called Corona Surveys. And, and this has been really cool. They have a preprint out where they have been just using Facebook to not just ask about masks, but also just ask people like, have you had any symptoms? Do you know anyone with symptoms? And uh, that has allowed them to estimate how many cases are out there in a given region at a given time, even in countries where testing is really poor and there's not access to testing. Mm -hmm. So it's like this proxy, you know, Um, and it's cheap and it's effective and they've, you know, been able to to have pretty good predictions using this. So that is, that is one way to go about it is the survey data. And you spoke of all of this noise there, there's other there are other relatively unknown uh, numbers that we have, like the number of people who have asymptomatically had the the disease. Like I, I personally have a friend who um, was asymptomatic, never realized they had it. And they are, they, they donate blood like every couple of months or so. And the most recent time they donated blood, the antibody test came back saying, Hey, you've had it. Um, so we don't really have a good number on that, right? We're, we're still, um, we're still a far way away from being able to really estimate how many people have had the disease, but don't know it. Right. So, well, first of all, that's a good reason to donate blood for anyone that's listening. (laughs) That's That's a nice side benefit. Um, but I, that antibody data actually is so so we do actually have a pretty good idea of how many people um, have actually had it. Basically, my model wouldn't work if I if I didn't have an accurate estimate of that. Um, so just the fact that my predictions are working, you can backtrace and say that the inputs were correct. And one of those inputs is how many people uh, have had it that are asymptomatic. So. Um, the way that I was able to estimate that number 
is first of all, the CDC does random antibody studies. So they pick random people and those studies aren't perfect, but they're pretty good. And they ask how many people of those have antibodies and, and how, many, how many more times greater number of people have antibodies than have been uh, reported from testing. Okay. Um, and so that information is on their website. Um, so they have databases. So, and they have estimated, it. it's changed over time because we, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there were, in New York City, there was maybe 50 times as many people who had not been tested, who had the disease, who had not been tested for it. Now it's more like three times as many. So that was just because, you know, we didn't have the testing ramped up. Um, So it's changed over time, but you can use that. And then you can also use the death rate. So Mm -hmm. to estimate it and, and the way you use the death rate is that, so right now in the U S about 3% of people who have tested positive for COVID have died. Well, we know that the disease is not actually that lethal. It's more like 0.5% to one and a half percent. So we know that, um, that, so that would let you know that many more people have had it than, than have died of it. And of course you, you can combine those two metrics, the death rate. You also have to include age because if a place has an older population, more people are going to die. The death rate is going to change in those places, depending on the population, health, and age. Um, so y- you can include a bunch of things together and have a pretty good estimate of how many people have actually had the disease. So would it be violating the uh, um, the secret sauce of your um, your inputs to reveal to us what that input is at this moment? Because if you take that input plus the percentage of the population that's been vaccinated um, and then subtract whatever the magic number for, um, for her immunity is that gap is the distance that we need to get to for the pandemic to be effectively over. Um, so do, do you have a, a strong feeling as to what those two numbers are at the moment? Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, and I should say another thing that my model does is it, it considers each state separately and then adds them together to get the U.S. So the states are at different levels of immunity, but overall, and, and that varies widely, like Vermont is still under 10% immune um, just because they've been pretty strict about what they've done, you know, whereas New York is, is really high like over 80%. So, um, but as a whole, the U.S. is around 45% immune, and that varies by state and county, so that, you know, you can't have a blanket statement about uh, every place based on that number, but, and we know that we've now vaccinated, uh, we've given 18 shots per 100 people, and so, my model is estimating that cases will go down um, in uh, 29. So I have 29 days until cases will be down to less than 5,000 new cases um, a day, which is like uh, March 15th, 2020 levels, like a, a year ago, like really low levels. Um, that that It's going to depend on your risk, but I would say that it's essentially over-ish at that point because the levels are low enough that it's pretty safe. Um, And of course I give caveats to that, like these new variants could um, throw a wrench in that for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and let me back up real quick. When you said the the number is at 45%, is that 45% immune? Is that naturally immune or naturally and vaccinated? So, so that is, so 45% uh, is the combination of the two. Okay. Roughly, yeah. So my um, limited, you know, layperson understanding of, of this target that we're heading towards, um, this magical term of herd immunity, um, the, 
the where that number is supposed to be is still very much in question, uh, I believe, right? And that people estimate anywhere from like 65 to 90%. Yes. So, 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 and, and here's, here's a, a sticking point that I've been kind of talking about this whole pandemic. Herd immunity is the threshold, simply is just the threshold of percent immune that you need to get to to have cases continue to go down and not surge again. So Mm -hmm. they will go down from that. It's like an inflection point where cases will go down forever. Now, herd immunity is not a constant number. So originally, you know, they were estimating it to be somewhere, it would need to be somewhere around 75%. But that was based on France before we knew anything about COVID in like the very beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, a thing that I think about French culture is, you know, when people greet used to, I don't this, I don't think this is happening anymore, but before COVID, you know, French people would greet each other with kisses and hugs and, you know, it was like very, uh, this sort of kissy culture is like very prone to transmitting COVID, right? (laughs) Just by the way they greet each other, they're like getting very close, like, kind of breathing on each other when they greet each other. You know, Italy is the same way, these sort of cultures like that, as opposed to a place like Japan, right, where there isn't normally touching or getting that close to each other when greeting. So the reason this is important is that the herd immunity threshold changes with human behavior. So, you know, maybe in France you needed to be 75% immune, um, to have the cases go down. That was the threshold. Now, if behavior just changed a little bit, you know, for example, people were not hugging or kissing on greetings and they were wearing masks. Now, all of a sudden, most businesses and schools and things could be open because they're heard at a, at a less high threshold because of human behavior. So maybe the, the herd immunity threshold now only has to be 60%. Interesting. So am I, am I extrapolating the idea here correctly that um, once we get to this uh, threshold that you've been predicting of less than 5,000 cases a day, we still will need to um, adhere to social distancing suggestions and masking for a certain period of time because that number is currently based on assuming that we are following those guidelines? So, um, not exactly. So the U.S. compared to the to many European countries and to Canada um, is pretty open. I mean, we, we're not, you know, people aren't doing that much to uh, stop COVID spread. And, and it's actually a continuum. So the more immune you are, the higher level of open you can be without causing COVID to surge. So mm-hmm. an example of this is um, someone was asking me actually about Texas, you know, with the heat problem, the electric problem you guys had and people huddling together in these shelters. And, um, you know, is this going to cause a spike in COVID? Um, and I said, I didn't think that would happen. And the reason is because Texas is immune enough now to withstand some of these like potentially super spreader kind of events that would have spiked cases when you were less immune. That doesn't mean COVID is not going to spread at all, but Mm -hmm. it means that, you know, there's not going to be this surge. Um, The Super Bowl, also people were worried about, and there was a tiny little blip in Florida only. Mm-hmm. You know, they won the Super Bowl and they had these crazy parties, um, giant parties without masks. And everyone was worried that this would uh, spike COVID cases. And it barely did. There was barely a blip. And that is because Florida is not 75% immune, but they're close enough to that. They're maybe 55, 60% immune that like it's going to take a lot to spike cases. Of course, Christmas and New Year's spike cases, that was a bigger thing. Every airport in in the country was 
full of maskless people, you know, super spreading in every major city, right? So, you know, but the good news with that is you can have businesses open. You know, you can potentially have schools open. You can potentially have almost everything open and not spike cases, right? Um, There's just like certain things that, you know, might be a problem and those airports were one of them. Um, And uh, like the, you know, we looked at the Sturgis motorcycle rally, which was this 50,000 person motorcycle rally Mm -hmm. in August uh, in North and South Dakota, right? And that was a giant super spreader event. Three weeks later, cases went through the roof. Um, And, but I I don't think that would, that same event would not cause cases to surge anywhere near that level now in North in South Dakota, because at the time that the Sturgis motorcycle rally happened, you know, North and South Dakota had barely any cases. It's like they were only five or 7% immune, something like that. Now they're, you know, 60 some percent immune. So they can now have a greater level of open. And it doesn't mean cases won't um, spread at all. It just means that you're not going to see these huge spikes that overwhelm the hospitals and cause things to shut down. Do you have any um, data or solid conjecture about um, earlier you were speaking about one aspect of this and you, you referred to uh, it as, as being a continuum. And I've had, I've had one point of curiosity for a while. Um, a, A lot of the, conversation in the public sphere about herd immunity is is kind of shorthanded uh, like uh, it's almost like a dotted line that once we go across it's like a almost like a magical transformative moment whereas i'm assuming that the truth is that it's more of a gradual um sort of transition and in that gray area um if i'm correct Early in the pandemic, um, epidemiologists told us that one factor that happens to most viruses like this is as um, as natural immunity rises, eventually the the virus adapts to a less lethal uh, version. Um, I don't know if that's always the case or if we can even expect that that'll be the case with uh, a coronavirus. Um do you have any expectations or is part of your model predicting that sort of uh, like gray area or am I just totally off base here? Um, yeah. So I think, I see, I think there's like a couple of, of different uh, threads there. So, so the first thing is, is that yes, it is a continuum and it's not like a magic number. And I think the process sort of gotten that a little bit wrong, right? It, it, uh, it's a gradual, you know, the more immune, so, you know, maybe if you're, you're in a state that's less than 10% immune, you can't have restaurants open, right? You can't have schools open. You can't have, um, without cases spiking. If you get up to 40, 50%, now, you know, maybe you can have outdoor dining and, you know, you can have kids less than eighth grade open. So that was part of the contest was just sort of really delineate exactly what, parameters you need to have certain things open because right now countries are sort of all or nothing on these lockdowns instead of coming at them with like a fine tooth comb. Yeah. Um, and uh, the part about the virus becoming less lethal. So there's, there's two, two sort of ways that can happen. Um, one is through evolution, so it's just going to, if it can possibly mutate into a less lethal version of itself, right? And the virus does have an incentive to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's not alive, right? But it, it, uh, it a vi- what a virus really wants to be is super infective and um, not that lethal because that is how it's going to stick around on planet Earth and see another day, right? 
it's gonna yeah. get into everyone but it you know it, it, if it <laughs> if it kills its host too soon you know then it's not going to be able to spread because people are just gonna be dead um so there is sort of an evolutionary pressure for the virus to become very infective and not very lethal however we haven't seen that happen yet okay we have seen the variants so far the variants um are becoming more infective they're spreading faster but we haven't seen them really change in lethality that much. They seem to be about the same amount of lethal. And and maybe COVID will mutate to be less lethal, maybe not. Um, but I do think we're going to see hospitalizations go down and um, the death rate go down, uh, in part because we're vaccinating the most vulnerable people first. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you're going to see is this mismatch, this good mismatch between the number of cases and the number of hospitalizations and the number of deaths. Because, you know, if the people that are most immune and are being vaccinated are all older people or people with high risk conditions, then the people that have the cases are not the people that are going to get very sick and die from them. And so, is it true? Is it true? that we, we are starting to see hints of that already. Yes. Um, there are some like very positive um, things. The, the biggest thing is is nursing homes. So I have a friend who is a physician in Philadelphia, and he, he said, you know, he used to have patients come from nursing homes all the time with COVID. And that is not happening because the nursing homes have now been largely vaccinated. So we're not seeing nursing home residents um, in the hospital anymore. And that's really good news. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so I think that's the first little piece of evidence, but we're, we're going to need to wait like another month or two before we fully, um, see that. Although there's some great, uh, a great study out of Israel. So Israel managed to vaccinate their population very fast. They're one of the fastest countries and, um, they, have over 500,000 people that have at least one shot of the Pfizer vaccine now. And they have had zero deaths in the people that got those shots, zero. And only four very serious hospitalizations. So the vaccine looks awesome. That's fantastic. So uh, real quickly, I want to take a break here to have a word from our sponsor. And when we get back, I'm going to ask you the number one question I most want an answer to. Great. Okay, thank you. We're back. Now, I don't think society at large is as invested in this as I am. But the thing I want to know most is, when is it going to be safe to go back to the movie theater? The movie theater... Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something that's gonna make you happy and sad at the same time. So, okay. <laughs> which is, um, we maybe could have had had people at the movie theaters this whole time. So, like in Japan, they use this supercomputer to figure out all of the things that were safe or not safe to do. They've done an excellent job. I don't know why there hasn't been more press on what Japan has done during this pandemic, but Tokyo has been open this whole time and and they've had very few cases and very few deaths. So they've done a very impressive job with the pandemic. Um, and one thing they found was that movie theaters up until a certain capacity are actually pretty safe um, in terms of COVID surges. So they have had movie theaters open pretty much this whole time. Um, and I don't know about their theaters. Maybe they have better air, air filtration than us. Like I, I'd have to look into the, uh, the air filtration, which is something that I think we should be investing in as a country. Um, we know that these uh, filters, like the HEPA filters, are really helpful for allowing people to be indoors in public spaces. Um, would be helpful for schools and businesses and restaurants. Um, But uh, in terms of in the U.S., so one thing is, you know, it depends on your um, personal risk aversion and and your, you know, if you have any, uh, any sort of health conditions that make you high risk, right? So if you're a person that doesn't have any health conditions already, like, you know, 
probably, and, and you're not seeing, so the other thing is almost everybody, including myself, like sometimes sees people that are high risk, like relatives or friends, you know, that maybe have asthma or a history of cancer or diabetes or whatever. So if, if you don't see those people in a, in a way that puts them at risk and you yourself are not high risk, then I think the next thing to do is just look at community transmission and say, how, how many people in your county that you might want to see this movie in um, actually have COVID? And I've been working on this a little bit with like, a, I have an interactive map of the number of uh, active cases. So people that are infectious by county. Um, and then you can just say, okay, if one in a thousand people, you know, in a particular county, for example, is a hypothetical, mm -hmm. um, has COVID, then if you're in a theater, you know, how many people are in that theater? Maybe a hundred or 200. So maybe like you have a one in five chance of someone in that theater having COVID, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can just sort of say like, what... <laughs> what are my risk factors and like how much risk am I willing to take? Does it have to be like a one in a hundred chance that someone in that theater has COVID or one in a thousand or one in two, like people are going to have different um, levels of risk aversion, but mm -hmm. you can't actually come up with that number and, and know whether that movie theater or that restaurant you're going to go to, um, you know, falls within a safe range for you personally. Um, and I think that, so I, I chose this kind of arbitrary cutoff of less than 5,000 new cases per day um, in the U.S. as for me feeling like that's, that's pretty over for this pandemic. And that doesn't mean that high-risk people shouldn't still be very aware and like people shouldn't wear masks. It just means like that community transmission is going to be very low at that point. Um, and, you know, if you're walking around and the odds are you're not going to pa pass by anyone with COVID because it's just not there, then it becomes much safer. So, and at a certain point, there there's compounding benefits to these case numbers going down too, right? Because... Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, several months ago, if you got the if you got the disease, your access to treatments um, may have been very limited due to supply. But I'm I'm guessing that as cases go down, um, if you do get it and you are someone who has an underlying condition, um, your potential access to treatments is maybe going to be better. Yeah, so that's and that's the reason why we don't want um, hospitals to be overwhelmed, right? It's because ventilators, for instance, right, were, were a problem not having enough ventilators, um, and we have we do have some treatments. So they so the pharmaceutical treatments for COVID have, you know, some steroids and some other things have gotten better, and so maybe we've been able to cut death by COVID by 20%, something like that with these new treatments. Um, but you still don't, you don't want to be on a ventilator. Right. That, that is not, that's not good. Spending time in an ICU in that way is just, it's, you know, there's a high risk of death and it's, there's a high risk of disability afterwards. Um, so I, for people that have really high risk conditions, I would still, say, please, you know, please be really careful, um, even if the numbers go down. Um, but I think, you know, for people that want to be able to go to a movie theater and are medium risk or low risk, or people that, or parents that want their kids back in school, or, you know, small business owners that want to be able to have their bar or restaurant or store open, you know, those things will, will be able to happen without spiking community cases, which is a really a big deal. So one question I wanted to ask you is just about like categorizing the types of knowledge we have about this pandemic. Um, I've, I've tried to pay attention to what's available in the popular media um, and 
very early on, um, there were a handful of studies or instances of contract contact tracing that seemed to be, you know, getting really close to the source of a spreading event. Um, and like a, there was one famous thing that went around social media. There was a chart of a restaurant where they were able to identify the person that came into the restaurant and they charted who else was sitting at the table, who was sitting at other tables and how many days later that person got sick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ever since then, and maybe this is just my lack of exposure to it, almost everything that we seem to know now is coming from people in your area of study um, analyzing data. Um, is that is that accurate? Is that where most of what we know is coming from? From you mean from modeling as opposed to co- contact tracing, or just you know data versus physical science? You know, um, like transmissibility. Um, are is is everything based on analyzing case numbers and like population density and so forth, um, or are there studies that I'm unaware of of you know people putting monkeys in a chamber with a <laughs> and, and infecting them and watching, observing the droplets, how far they go when they sneeze, you know, et cetera. I have a very limited understanding of, of this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, so I actually have not been following the literature on, I, I think a lot of groups are probably like in material science or engineers that are looking into how the droplets disperse and, you know, is there any better masks or, you know, how, how far it's spreading. Um, that literature I'm sure exists and it would be interesting to do a dive into sort of like the technology and the the physical, um, uh, studies that people are doing. Um, I know with contact tracing specifically, um, you know, the cases got kind of too out of control here for them to really be useful contact tracing. Yeah. You know, (laughs) if one out of every 10 people has a COVID or something in your area, what's the point of trying to figure out contact tracing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but in countries that had lower caseloads, that was very useful because they could, you know, figure out exactly who had it and then isolate them and then stop the spread. And, you know, that would prevent other people from getting it. Um, so I, I think the population modeling here has been increasingly useful recently just because we have so much COVID that these other methods are kind of a little bit obsolete, um, at least in terms of contact tracing. Now, that's not true in um, San Francisco. San Francisco has actually done an awesome job with COVID, and they have used contact tracing effectively. Okay. Um, But they shut down 10 days before New York originally. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have the, the, you know, at that point they could trace, you know, a couple thousand people, but you can't trace, you know, 20,000 people. Like, right, right, you know, right. like, so if you have those lower numbers, then you can actually do contact tracing effectively. So I've got a couple more questions about your model and I, I don't know if you can even answer them. Um, I don't know before we started recording the episode, um, you, you told me that, um, you're totally comfortable with being very transparent in your methodology and so forth. Um, I don't know if your other competitors in the X prize contest are as equally transparent. Um, but if they are, um, do you have any insight on what factors in your model, the decisions you made in making the model, are making it perform so much better than the competitors. Yeah. So, so I don't know the, the, all of their methods. I should say that, that, that I don't have access to how, how everyone uh, designed their model or even most people. Um, But I can talk about what worked with my model. So a lot of them that I noticed um, 
actually did not have that spike for Christmas and New Year's. They just had cases going down initially. And uh, that is a feature of my model are these like super spreading events. So I actually used what happened over Thanksgiving, um, the shape of that, like what happened, the spike that we got based on people traveling and being in airports and things over Thanksgiving to predict what would happen with Christmas and New Year's. So I use that, those like same numbers to infer that there's going to be this bump, you know, seven days after Christmas and then seven days after New Year's. So that really gave the first part of my model um, uh, that, you know, those spikes were accurate and they had the they, they went, the cases went up to the correct level and all of that, that we actually saw with real data. And that was based on Thanksgiving. So, and that could be extended to any sort of super spreading events, right? Um, like the Sturgis rally or, um, you know, Memorial Day or, you know, any of these things. So that is one feature of my model that I think was very effective. The other one that I already talked about is I'm actually summing over the various states. I'm treating them independently because they they do they are actually independent models for each state because states have very different behavior, they have very different policies, they have very different levels of immunity. So you kind of can't take the US as a whole. There's just that's too noisy. So and I, and so that is another feature of my model that makes it more accurate. Um, and then the last thing is, is the other thing that we talked about is just accurately knowing how many people actually had it, including those people that were asymptomatic. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I happen to be living in a part of the country that gives me at least, at least anecdotal um, visibility into the strength of your model because um, it just so happens I live in a city where we have pockets and I'll just say um, uh, culturally divided or politically divided um, behavior sets that are in pretty close proximity um, here in Houston, Texas. We have a lot of people following social distancing guidelines and masking suggestions right alongside people who openly um, uh go against those suggestions. So I, I get to see the, the, the different, the different States almost that you're describing in a, in a confined space here. Yeah. And, and that's been really unfortunate that there's been so much polarization uh, during this pandemic. And, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on how all of that happened um, because I, I believe that there was like this happy medium that, you know, a lot of people, would have been comfortable with that was not total lockdown and was not totally open, no masks, right? There, mm. there is sort of like a, a happy medium there that balances those things. And um, it, it's unfortunate that, that all of that happened. And I think there were a lot of contributing factors. Um, but yeah, behavior makes a big difference. Um, and uh but Houston seems to be doing kind of okay right now with case numbers. So that's positive. Yeah. So your model and the other models that you're aware of, um, how much better equipped are we for the next pandemic uh, now that we have all of these sources of data? Yeah. I mean, that is a really um, a thing that, that I am really hoping to contribute, you know, once this is published and out there that next time, you know, if it's something similar, then we can just reapply these same models and, and, you know, have a better plan that doesn't leave us for a whole year, you know, economically and health-wise devastated that, you know, there can, you know, we can do better in terms of, you know, making people's lives better and, and, and have, have things open, you know, parse things correctly, you know, not be so heavy handed or just completely lax. 
Um, because I think all of that, there was a lot of unnecessary suffering this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, and on a, num- on a number of levels. And, you know, I have a lot of empathy for a lot of people's different points of view on this. You know, I think it's it's easy to say everyone should just be locked down when everyone has a Zoom job and, you know, yeah. you're fine and you have childcare. You know, economically, people, a lot of people just can't afford to do that. Um, so uh, I think to answer your question, I, I really think we're going to be much better prepared. Uh, I think it should go much more smoothly. Um, I, I think the government needs to invest money into keeping up the infrastructure. And, and uh, we need to have good data because part of what's made um, modeling so challenging with this is not having enough testing and not having enough data. So I think that should be a priority just because predictions are important. I mean, they're, they're what allow decision makers to be able to make good decisions. And if you don't have data, don't have testing, you can't uh, make good predictions. Right. Yeah. Um, I hope what I ask next is, is not, um, an unfair question, but um, in addition to uh, uh, you know computational biology, one of your fields of study or expertise is neuroscience. And if you could put on your neuroscientist hat for a moment, I'm very curious about the state of our brains after this pandemic and whether we've rewired our brains permanently or whether we will be able to adapt back into a normal mindset because um, we've now lived for a year walking around our fellow humans, treating every other human as kind of like a danger vector. Um, and if you're trying to be as, as socially distant and responsible as you can, it, you're almost like living in a video game and like you see someone walking towards you and you feel like they're going to intrude on your space, you start easing to the other side of the pathway. Um, and I've actually been extremely adherent as much as I can on social distancing and masking. Um, I, I set foot in a grocery store for the first time in a year just this week um, wow. due, to the, due to the dangerous situation that we've uh, been in here in Houston and it was super packed and it was, it was a very stressful mental state to find myself in. Um, Cause there were a lot of people that were either not masking, not giving proper sp- space um, or even if they were masking, they were sort of doing the like half masking thing. That's the, the functional equivalent of not wearing a mask anyway. Um, so um I'm concerned that I'm going to I'm going to stay thinking this way for a very long time. Um and, and am I just being paranoid here or um are are we going to are our brains plastic enough to get back to normal states of being? Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting question. I mean, I've I've wondered that myself. Um you know, I, I've had a similar experience to what you're talking about. I had to get my computer fixed at the Apple store and going into a mall is very anxiety producing for me. Um, even though the Apple store has really good policies with masks and, and things, you know, it's just, or, or I watch a TV program on Netflix from the before times and people are like hugging and dancing with each other. And I, you know, for a moment, I just get really taken aback. Like, whoa, you don't do that. You know? like, I had that exact same thing happen to me the other day. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was a movie that was filmed five years ago. And I, and I was, I was watching it with my brother and he said the same thing. Yeah. It was like viscerally uncomfortable to watch. And you just kind of have to tell your brain, oh, wait, that's a different time period. Um, and, and I think there is going to be a real adjustment. I, you know, I don't know how it's really going to go. I mean, I think our, our brains are plastic. Like, it is possible to get back to that point. But th- there may be some things, for better or for worse, that stick with us from this pandemic. You know, I think people are going to be maybe more germaphobic. And 
hyper vigilant about touching things and you know people are maybe going to be less willing to hug strangers for a while um Mm -hmm. or feel less comfortable in crowded spaces um and you know i think that will gradually get better um and maybe you know i and i especially feel bad for the kids because time is so um dragged out for them i can't imagine what you know the last year for a 10 year old was like and how they're gonna yeah adjust. um so i think i think it's sort of a mixed answer like i i do think we're gonna get back to a period of more normal i don't, I don't know that it's ever really gonna be entirely the same um, there might be some positives that come out of it. Maybe people will have better hand hygiene and, you know, <laughs> going forward or be more willing to wear a mask if they have a cold. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I think for some people, yeah, there's, I mean, there's going to be, I mean, we know that there are a ton of mental health issues that happened this past year, you know, depression rates went way up, anxiety rates went way up and, uh, you know, there might even be some element of PTSD from this Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, pandemic or people that end up like not comfortable in crowds for a long time and and, and have to go to therapy maybe to try to think through that and process that. Um, And that's real. But I do, I do think it will gradually get better. What, what time frame that is, it's probably going to be dependent on the individual Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess this might be my last question. Um, the, this field of study that that you're in right now, this computational biology, and specifically the 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 analyzing of these phenomenon um, in relation to the spread of a disease, can you speculate of other applications? of this type of knowledge? Like are other fields going to be impacted and improved by this? By, oh, by predictive modeling in general? Yeah. Like, am I going to be able to know who's going to win the Super Bowl next year based on your model or, you know, I mean, that's an oversimplification, but you know. Yeah, actually um, I have had several people who follow my Facebook posts that are in the finance field that it's been relevant to stock prediction, just knowing what's going on with COVID. <laughs> so there's that. Um, and then also I have friends that have said it's been helpful for staffing hospitals. So like how many beds they're gonna need and when they can shut down a hospital. So there's applications there, but this kind of modeling could be used to predict just about anything, you know, from fantasy football to, you know, to stocks, to you name it. So yeah, it it does have a wider applications. And and I think that that, you know, was part of the XPRIZE goal was, you know, the making a model that then could be applicable to other things or climate change, or, you know, any of these sort of um, things that need predictions. Yeah. Well, that is all extraordinarily fascinating. And we will stay tuned. Um, uh, in rapt attention to see how that continues. I, I want to thank you again so much for uh, coming onto the program and allowing us to uh, uh, ask you so many questions. Uh, I know your time is valuable and I wish you the best of luck on the competition. Um, uh, it will benefit all of us if your, if your, if your model is uh, continues to be accurate. Yes. Thank you so much. This has really been fun. I've enjoyed it. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye.